Um, all right, so as we are uh, continuing our conversation in waiting, um, it's, it's so good, by the way. I know a lot of you are people I don't know. Um, you're here with family, and you're not regularly here, and we are so proud to have you guys. Um, and also, obviously, about, I don't know, half of us are someplace else, hopefully um, experiencing worship, maybe online, maybe someplace else. Um, but uh, thank you guys. We're so proud to have you here, and especially for family and friends. Um, what a great gift to them that you've come to, uh, to spend this time. Um, we've been talking about waiting during Advent for the last um, four weeks, and we're just keeping riding on going with that, um, with that theme. Um, it seems to apply. We talked about how we're learning to wait patiently and eagerly <coughs> like the, um, the people of Israel did before the first Advent. Um, we're learning to wait while we wait watching and listening like Simeon and Anna did. Uh, wait preparing like the wise men, trusting like Mary and Elizabeth. In fact, the more I've unpacked this idea, and I've been unpacking it as we've talked about it in my own life, what I think waiting primarily is, when we talk about waiting on the Lord, what we mean is trusting. What we mean is counting on Him, His way, not my way. Um, that we don't leave the path in pursuit of the shortcut. We don't accept the counterfeit. Um, uh, a lot of times when we talk about this stuff in our own lives, it's amazing how what we mean when we're talking about something like this is, is uh, so let's take the counterfeit idea and unpack that. When I teach, especially like on pornography and things like that, I will often talk about this counterfeit concept, that any time that there is a good thing that God has offered us, a good gift, C.S. Lewis would say every single time that God offers us a good gift, we then have other ways to pursue it other than His way of pursuing it. So if there's something good out there that He has for us, a purpose, um, an experience, uh, a pleasure, uh, something like that that we want to pursue, there is God's way of pursuing those things. And then there's all the other ways, our own uh, brokenness, the world, the devil will offer up ideas, counterfeits, if you will, for experiencing that thing. And I often use the analogy of, of a, let's say there was a, a young person who said, hey, my, my measure of success is going to be a a big Rolex watch, a, a very expensive Rolex watch. And I go, that's, that's what I'm going to measure. I wouldn't recommend that, but that's what someone says. That's what they're going to measure their success by. But they're only able to set aside a little bit of money each month to go towards their Rolex watch, 50 bucks towards their Rolex. And on the way to the bank the first time, they've got their 50 bucks in their little hands and they get there. On the way to the bank, there's a guy selling Rolexes on the side of the road for 50 bucks. Now, no one... Surely no one thinks those are actually Rolexes, right? I mean, it's not going to work for very long. It's going to turn your arm green, and, and it's, 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 not, it's not the real thing. But it's right now, and it's right here, and, and I can get it now. And so the question is, am I going to wait? And I'm going to do, do, do this the way, the right way, the true way, as we're talking about now, when it comes to issues of, of life and faith. Am I going to do this God's way, or am I going to do this my way? That we're on a path and we think we can see the conclusion. This is where I want to get. I can see it over there, but the path that God has me on is leading this direction. It sure seems like I could just cut straight through the forest and go straight through that. Or do I, or do I stay on this? And, and that's really what waiting is, is trusting that the path that God has me on is the path to lead me where He knows is best for me. Now, again, that's not passive. You're walking a path. You're saving towards that Rolex. You're you're doing the things that are investing in the right things that matter. But so often what we do is we go, no, there's something out here that I want. I want that thing. 
And God is telling me, I can't have it when I want it or the way that I want it. And so I've either got to trust him and wait on him, or I've got to trust me and do it my way. And I choose me. That's what it means to fail to wait on the Lord or to wait on the Lord. And I think that's the fundamental picture for it. There's this good thing that we want, and God is saying, here's how you get it. And we're saying, no, I've got something better. I've got a better option. These pleasures, accomplishments, these relationships, these are good things that God wants for us, but we're pursuing them in a way that serves us. This hasn't been our, this idea of, of the advent, uh, the waiting on the first advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ hasn't even been our main point, but it's where we've been learning. Uh, Betsy Howard in the book Seasons of Waiting says this. Listen, it's not going to be on the screen, so you have to listen. When we sing... O come, O come, Emmanuel. We're not role-playing what the ancient Israelites must have prayed before the coming of the Messiah. No, we're praying that Emmanuel would return and make right all that is wrong with the world. When we sing, let every heart prepare him room, we're not retroactively chastising the innkeeper of Bethlehem. We're preaching to all the souls within earshot to be ready to meet the judge and maker unafraid. Make room for him in your heart. So we've been focusing on those first century people who experienced the first advent and what it was like for them to wait. But that's because we're asking them to kind of mentor us on how we learn to wait. How do we wait well? We feel this sibling relationship with the Jews who for thousands of years were waiting on their Messiah, as we saw in that scene with, with Peter. We've been waiting for so long. So what exactly is it that we're waiting for? Well, here it is. In Acts chapter 1, the people, the, the disciples, had been following Jesus around, and they understood this message, and he had come and, and lived this out, and they'd followed him, and he had lived this sinless life, and then, then he died. And of course, they thought that was it. Like, well, bummer, we picked badly, he died. Seemed like a great guy, and he's dead. And so they all scattered, and they went to their homes, and they whatever, and they're like, well, we, we, I guess we, we did badly here. That's why not a single one of them was waiting at the tomb when Jesus came out of the tomb. Even though he had told them, listen, they're going to kill me, in three days I'm going to come back. None of them believed him, just like we wouldn't have. <laughs> and so they think, oh, well, we blew it. And so they went, some, they went home, and then when he comes out, as we've talked about, he, you can imagine him coming out of the grave and going, really? No one. Not one, not one of you listened well enough to be here waiting for me. Now, of course, he knew that was coming, but, but this is a, that's, that's, that's the, he actually told them that's what would happen. And so he comes out. Well, then he spends another month and some days with them, 40 days with them. At the end of that time, we run into this in Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, so you got to be put yourself in their minds. They're going, okay, wonderful counselor. Yeah, he's, he's been doing that. Check. Got that one. Prince of Peace. All right, I can see that. I can see those last three years that he's kind of lived out this Prince of Peace role. Um, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So you've not done, no, no, so you've not done that one. So there's a box unchecked. So is that, is now, are you going to check that box now, Jesus? Is that Okay, now is the time for that. You've done the whole death, burial, resurrection, comeback thing that you said you were going to do. So now is it, now, now are you going to make yourself the king of Israel and, 
and, and conquer the Romans and <coughs> lead us with a scepter and, and all the stuff that the other prophecies have for you. He said to them, it's not for you to know the time or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There it is. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for, waiting for the same thing they did. Luckily, Jesus had told them to go back to Jerusalem. Otherwise, they probably would have still been standing on that hillside days later, weeks later, months later, going, so how long do we wait? I mean, apparently, he's coming back. And it's natural that they would have assumed that the angels, I assume angels, saying he's going to come back the same way you saw him leave, they assumed that meant he's going to come back to you the way you saw him leave. And so they're like, okay, good. So when? How long do we need to stand here? We'll wait. I'll tell you what, we'll wait. We, we pack lunches. We'll just wait here until he comes back. But Jesus had told them, no, no, go. Go back to Jerusalem. Do, do what I told you to do. This is what we're waiting for is the second advent. See, those, those unchecked boxes, they understood and began to understand that was for the next time. There's some unchecked boxes, and he told them he's going to come back, and apparently that's what's going to happen. When Jesus comes in the same way they saw him go, now there are things about this we know, and there are plenty of mysteries, but it is a core teaching of the Christian faith that Jesus is coming back. How he's coming back, when he's coming back, what exactly is going to look like when he comes back, we have been debating for 2,000 years, and we'll continue to debate until he shows us. And that's fine. We can have all different kinds of opinions about how it's going to happen and still be Christian, but to... But whether it's going to happen is not open to debate within Christian doctrine. He is coming back. He said, his men said, his angels said he was going to. He said he was going to, as you'll see in a minute. And so you'll recognize every, pretty much every book in the New Testament references it. Every author talks about it. In the mid-300s, church leaders determined to put the beliefs of Christianity into a simple series of truth claims. We know it today as the Apostles' Creed. It was probably, there's no reason to think it was written by the apostles. It's just a condensation of the teachings of the apostles into a few basic claims. About Jesus, it says, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and was buried. <coughs> On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Even if you're going to turn the, the basic doctrines, the basic concepts of the Christian belief into just a few sentences, you have to include, he's coming again. The good news of Jesus makes good sense to me. Um, I'm a pretty rationalist type of person. The, the idea that in order to solve the, the breach between God and man that man could never solve, it makes sense to me that God would therefore have to solve it. That makes sense. Doesn't require any any special work of faith for me to go. Okay, I mean that's that's how you do things. That's how we do things on Earth. If there's a breach between me and my children, I have to take the lead in that. They don't. So it, it just that makes sense. So he's going to have to take the point. He's the only one who can solve it. It's something I can't solve. So he does. So he came. 
He experienced life as a human being in order to represent us. Again, that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that we needed a representative, one of us, to stand in for the rest of us. Each of us was messing this up. We needed someone to come along, do it right, and then stand in for us and go, listen, I'll be the representative of mankind and I'll do it right. And that's, that's exactly what happened. And then it makes sense to me that then what would need to happen is all of the rest of us, our errors and sin, the way we're messed up, would need to then somehow be paid for because they don't just go away. Any of us who have ever forgiven somebody knows the consequences of being hurt and sinned against, they don't just go away. We, somebody's got to pay. And so it makes sense to me that he would say, well, then I'm going to pay. That all the, see, all of this, the, the gospel message to me revealed in Scripture honestly doesn't require a whole lot of, of me going like, I'm just going to choose to believe that. Because it makes sense. It just does. It seems rational. The second coming, though, is about trust. I have no way to prove that he's coming back. It's easy for us to begin to feel like a little, a little delusional about the fact that we're saying he's going to come back. It begins to feel kind of a, like a strange claim that we can make. But every writer of the New Testament talks about it. This, along with the resurrection of human beings, was the core of the hope they held on to. He will come again to rescue us to fulfill the rest of his prophecies about him. <clears throat> now, I'm going to comment on prophecy real quick. If you want to get this unpacked completely, back in March and April of 2017, I preached a short series on prophecy, the, the philosophy and concept of prophecy. So you can go back on our website March and April of 2017, and what I'm going to do in just a few sentences, I really unpacked back then. But the idea of prophecy, we, remember we studied in Daniel, we studied in 2020, we studied Daniel to understand how a person deeply devoted to God lives in a culture that is not friendly to a faith in God. What's that like to live in that culture? Well, Daniel showed us from almost from birth until death. In 2021, we've been studying 1 Peter to embrace the idea of becoming a suffer-ready church. And with a suffer, in each of us to have a suffer-ready faith. When we talk about prophecy, there's some mistakes that are made in prophecy. One is, people are always trying to attach today's headlines to prophecy. There's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. The right way to do that is to recognize what we talked about with Jesus' words are the birth pangs idea. When we see prophecy being fulfilled, it's being fulfilled, but it's been fulfilled before, and it will be fulfilled again. It's just like what Jesus references with, like I said, birth pangs. It's like you get a pain and then it goes away, and then there's another one, and it goes away, and another one, and it goes away. And so we see the things being fulfilled. This may be the last time. We go, this is it. That eventually, one of these times, a baby's coming out of here, right? Eventually, we're getting a baby out of this. And so eventually, there's going to be a last time, a last birth pang. Is it this time? Don't know. And we looked at how these prophecies have been fulfilled over and over and over and over again through human history, and that's not going to change. It's still going to continue to happen until there's a last one. And so, yeah, we see the prophecies being fulfilled, and we go, this could be it, and it could be. Or it may be another one of the birth pangs that doesn't produce a baby. But here's what, what Christians often get most wrong, is we freak out when prophecy is being fulfilled. When we see prophecy being fulfilled around us, we start freaking out. Uh-oh, it's, it's all going to spin out of control. It's hitting the fan now. We're all in big trouble. Like, we've got to, oh boy, what are we going to do? We better start. That's exactly the opposite effect that prophecy is supposed to have on us. So the analogy I do, again, I want to do this quickly, is if I said, I'm going to send you to Tuscaloosa, um, Alabama, I, rec I, I, uh, I recommend the second entrance. So go north to I-20, go east, and then take the second entrance to Tuscaloosa. 
Well, that's all the information you have. It's going to be a terrifying trip for you. You miss one exit, and you're like, oh, shoot, did that... I don't know how long is it going to take? When is it going to be? And there's going to, and you, and you, the whole time you're having to focus 100%, but then you could easily miss it and your, your mind drifts. It would be terrifying. But what I could do is give you some roadmap, some, some like sites along the way to be watching for. I talk about boats on, on, the, on the land. You're going to come up to a city that's got boats, but the boats are on land and, and that's really weird. And, and you're going to see those and go, oh, I'm telling you that's going to happen. And then you're going to drive for a couple hours in a, in a state that has terrible roads and it's going to feel like you're on a bridge the whole time, like thump, 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 the, whole, the entire distance. And, and then you're going to come to a big bridge and, and the big bridge is really amazing and it's impressive. And you're, going to, and, what's going to, and, and you're going to think, is this the bridge? Is this the bridge? Is this the bridge? If you're asking, is this the bridge, then it isn't. When you get to the bridge, you go, oh, this bridge. This must be the one he meant, right? Well, think about, so imagine that's, like, that's what prophecy is like. If you're headed on I-20, headed east, and you start getting nervous, and you're like, uh, it's been a couple hours, I've not seen this exit. Then you go into Shreveport, and you see boats on dry land. You go, he said there'd be boats on dry land. Does that make you panic? No, exactly the opposite. You go, okay, all right, take a breath. Still on the right road. Then all through Louisiana, you're hearing those thumps, and instead of being irritated by them, you're going, he, yep, he said this would happen. And then you go across one bridge after another, and you think, gosh, that was a pretty big bridge. I wonder if that's the one he meant. Well, I, gosh, that was an impressive bridge. I wonder if that's the one he meant. And then you get the Mississippi River Bridge, and you go, oh. Right? That doesn't make you panic. It comforts you. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We see prophecy being fulfilled. As we don't panic, we go, right. He said this would happen. We're on the right path here. See, that's the correct consequence. So as we talk about things that are anything connected to end times, I always want to take a second and prepare you to not panic, but be relieved. Find comfort and peace in this. The second coming references are so pervasive in the New Testament that the toughest thing was selecting which ones to cut. <clears throat> By the way, if you don't believe me, and you shouldn't, look them up yourself. Remember I said last week, if you don't read your Bible for yourself, how do you know you're not in a cult? It is vitally important. I, honestly, if it was me, and in fact it has been me before sitting out there, I don't trust what's even on the screen. I pull out my Bible and I look at it, right? So if I were you, I'd pull out my Bible and we'll start with looking at some of these powerful examples in John 14 is where we're going to start. In John 14, 1 through 3, by the way, this, this also these three verses took two whole sermons themselves back in May of 2019. So if you want to go back to May 12th and 19th of 2019 on the website and listen to or watch these, you can see these two verses be unpacked in detail. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." This is Jesus saying, I am coming back. This is betrothal language in the Hebrew world. The groom, the groom and the bride are betrothed. He's now going to go build a place for them, and he's going to come back and get her. In a second, I'm going to show you, he's only been working on it for a weekend. We'll get to there. He is like a groom, is eager for his bride to join him. He is waiting. We see this again. In Revelation 22, we get this imagery over and over again. Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each of our own for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Jesus is showing us through these two passages that John wrote the promises of the advent that have been missed, the powerful leader, the military, the political authority, the new home for his people. That's coming with the second advent. See, broken promises and promises yet unfulfilled aren't the same thing. How many of you experienced this season especially a message from Amazon saying, We're delayed. We, you're, the, the, the arrival date for your package has been delayed, right? That's a, a promise yet unfulfilled. There's two or three Christmas presents still waiting for members of our family. That's not the same thing as Amazon sending you an email saying, you know what, honestly, we just lied. There is no such thing. We don't sell that. It's not here. There isn't any. A promise unfulfilled is different um, than a promise yet unfulfilled that's coming. In fact, some promises, some promises unfulfilled are done out of love. Stalling to fulfill a promise would be loving. Could be. You notice that Jesus said, I am coming soon there in that passage. What an interesting thing for, for John to have written down somewhere around AD 90. Again, 2,000 years ago, coming soon. So what is, what is soon? Well, Peter, before John even wrote that, prepared us for this. He knew this was going to happen. Listen to this. 2 Peter 3, 3-4. through 4, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You're saying he's going to come back, but he's not. I mean, come on, at what point does the lack of evidence become evidence? He's not here. He hasn't shown up yet. What's the deal with that? I'm curious. How many of you have lost sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, friends? And you just assume Jesus not come back today and initiate judgment. That you would say, you know what, Lord, if you would wait until my son puts his faith in you, I'd be okay with that. You know what, there's this friend of mine who doesn't know you, and I think they really want to, and they're just trying to work past their own barriers. Could you wait a little while until he knows you too? That's exactly what he's going on. Here's Peter's answer to the complaints. It's two parts. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I think it's fascinating that Peter uses the word thousand here. Not dozen, not hundred. There's no way Peter was thinking that 2,000 years from now, in 2021, almost 2022, we'd still be talking about his letter. No way. And yet he put the word thousand there. The Holy Spirit, I think, inspired him to do that for our sake. Jesus has been working not yet for a full weekend. By that standard, it's only been a couple of days since he left. For an eternal being, a thousand years just doesn't mean a whole lot. For us, it does. For him, it doesn't. A day is like a thousand years, or a thousand years is a day. Jesus has only been working for the weekend on this new place that he's going to prepare for us. We need to be patient. But it's not us being patient, it's him. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's some people he's waiting on. He doesn't want to come until it's time. And it's not time so long as anyone else is going to put their faith in him. He was ready to wait. The reason Christ is waiting to come back is so that everyone who hasn't accepted his free gift of eternal salvation still might. 
We're waiting patiently. He's waiting patiently. And what's fascinating is this is often portrayed with all types of different error and weird thoughts. But really, the gift of salvation, it struck me earlier this morning, that the gift of salvation is really nothing more than your credit card company calling and saying, hey, someone checked in and wants to pay your debts. Press one to accept. Now, what's wild is how many people will go like, wait a minute, what's going on here? What's, what's the real story? Why would somebody want to, who has access to, who knows I have a, and I'm thinking, press one. Why are you talking? Press one. They're paying your debt off. Why are you asking questions? Press one. This is a, now, I'm a big question asker, as you know. I'll ask lots of questions after I press one. Like, I, I don't have any problem pressing, I don't have any problem, I'll, I'll, I want to know all the details. I want all the answers but I don't want to ask the kind of questions that are get somebody to go like, you know what, never mind. I want to press one. I want, it's, we, like it's not even, salvation is not even something that we ask God for. It's something that he offers freely, and all we have to do is accept it. It's, it's a, by the way, all those debts, all that guilt, all those things, like, okay, press one. It just it struck me this morning. This is, this is what we're talking about here. So, so if we're talking about that type of of debt payment. This is really important. He's waiting patiently for other people to do so. Change your life. It's so core to who we are. So that was Peter, and that was John. Now here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 23, for, by, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in, resur- in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. At his coming. Well, all, we all share the same fate of Adam. We've all taken our own path. We've all wandered away. We've all gone astray. We've all sinned against him. Everyone who lives in Christ will share the same fate as Christ. Christ was first, then when he comes back, all of us who are his. Same thing. This is core. If you, if you have a hard time with the claims of the resurrection, um, then I, rep- I recommend 1 Corinthians 15. Go back and read it. It is Paul's linear and logical argument to defend the resurrection. And if Jesus was resurrected, Christianity's got a pretty good claim, doesn't it? He took care of the sins. So here we are in Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews. Um, by the way, if, if every once in a while we'll, we'll complain about how the fact the Bible's not clear enough about something. Um, and I get that. I complain about that too. I wish it would be clear about certain things. Um, and this is one of those where the writer of, of Hebrews, not, probably unknowingly, ended a question. So if, if you're one of those people who's like, I think reincarnation has some real merit. That's really cool. I wonder if the Bible ever says anything about reincarnation. That's not what this passage is about, but it answers this question. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that come judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming back to save us. He already took care of the sins. That's, got, that's done. He was finished. And now he's, come back to re- he's going to come back to rescue us. One of the things we run into, I run into as a pastor is sometimes I'll find a passage in the Bible that I wish I had had five weeks earlier. Um, this happened this week in our, in our podcast as, as we were looking at the different passages that reference the second coming. This, this passage from James could have been my theme. It could have been the outline for the last five weeks. Oh, well. Um, James 5, verse 7. 
Starting in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Fascinating, as once again, James requires so little interpretation. He writes like a a, a 22nd century American. Um, He's one of the easiest ones for us to read and understand, usually without much work. Um, There's some biblical language that may challenge you, but he just says it. The Lord is coming back, so be patient. I don't know, like a farmer's patient. Be patient like a farmer. Anchor your hearts, establish your hearts into something immovable. Anchor them, dig down deep, lay a foundation so that whatever happens while you have to wait, you don't lose it. Don't turn on one another while you're waiting. Amen? It always feels to me like, like James wrote this last week. When you read the book of James, it's like, oh, he knows us. Hey, while you're waiting, don't turn on one another. Don't get mad at the other people in line, Right? You know, some examples for waiting patiently and suffering? Oh, I don't know. How about the prophets? They waited patiently, and many of them were killed while they waited. Or, gosh, Job, who waited patiently and steadfastly until the Lord's mercy broke out in his suffering. Like Peter and James, and the writer of Hebrews, and John, Jesus wants us to be, he wants us also to be clear, and that's this, be prepared to wait. In fact, when we see a parable, I read this parable at the end of the service last week, when, we're, when we read a parable, when you read one of Jesus' parables, you're looking for it to have one specific meaning. One, don't try to build a ton of doctrine on it. Don't try to build a ton of theology on it. That can be really dangerous. What we want to focus on is what is the one main message Jesus is trying to make. When he interprets his own um, parables, he usually has one main message he's trying to make. Let's listen to this one. Matthew 25, 1-13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So they hear the announcement, the bridegroom's coming, so they need to all get ready, and they're waiting. The bridegroom's going to show up, gather up these big parade, go back and celebrate the wedding, okay? That's the plan. That's what happened in in first century Israel. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the five foolish took their lamps, they took no extra oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, and the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept, when at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut." Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's a simple message. Be prepared to wait. What is the oil in your lamp? Whatever it is, make sure you're stocked up. Don't let your light go out. Feed the oil in the lamp. This is what we're supposed to be doing while we're waiting. Be prepared, not only to prepare for all other things while we wait, but be prepared just to wait. 
There's a party going on inside. There's a wedding going on inside. There's good gifts inside. We talked about um, the other day, uh, Paul McKenzie, who's not here, has two young daughters. And he said this was an interesting year for them because they're old enough to know Christmas is coming. But they're too young to understand how calendars work. And so day after day, it's to, they wake up, eyes wide. Is today the day? Is it Christmas? Do we open presents today? Like what's a, And every day they would do that. They would try to explain to them, no, no. It's like, it's like uh, my kids have the five-minute thing. Since long before they knew what the number five meant or what the word minutes meant or know how to tell time, they would always ask for five more minutes. Any of you experience this? Time to, come, time to come in. Five more minutes. You're like, kid, you don't know what that means. Like you have no, all five more minutes is, it's that period of time that I can get away with stalling for just a little while longer. That's all that it meant. Let me stall just for a few more minutes. This, I think, is the same idea. We're supposed to be waiting this way. Is it today? How about today? Could it be today? We believe God, I think God wants us to wait this way. We're watching for him to tell us, okay, it's time. It's time. Okay, it's time. He offers it freely. It's time for suffering and pain to end. That's time. Everybody out of the suffering and pain pool. Pool's closing. It's time for trauma to be finally and fully healed forever. No more of that. It's time to understand the purpose of so many things that we faced. Why this and why not that? It's finally time for us to get to see, as we showed one Sunday, the front of the tapestry, which makes sense, not just the back of the tapestry that looks like random threads. It's time for that. It's time to see those things. It's time to have our tears wiped away by his gentle hands. It's time to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of your Lord forever. See, we, we remind ourselves of this week after week after week. Every, t- every week when we take communion, we remind ourselves of, of the fact that we're waiting for him to come back. Every Sunday, and you're welcome to join us at 8.40 on Sunday mornings to take communion. 1 Corinthians 11.26 is the last line we speak. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need that reminder. It's where our hope is. But I know some of you are thinking, I know how you think. You're thinking, what if I missed it though? Like, what if I didn't catch it? I mean, think about how many people missed the first advent, right? Somebody, there was a star and some guys in Persia saw it, but what about everybody else? There, was a, there were a bunch of angels and some shepherds saw it, but what about everybody else? If you've accepted his free gift, if you've called on his name, his promise is to save you forever, and though you were dead, yes, shall you live. Matthew 24, Jesus wants it to be clear in the, what's called the Olivet Discourse, his, his end times conversation. 26 and 27 says this, so if they say to you, look, he's out in the wilderness, don't go out there. Don't, don't even go. Isn't that a great line from Jesus? Hey, I saw Jesus is out in the wilderness, and you're like, yeah, no thanks, not coming. Look, look, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You're not going to miss this one. It's not going to be in a little stable, in a little town, and a little country. Plus, here's what struck me. Remember John 14? I think what, so often we think, we, we get in times confused because we think somehow it's about us. We get judgment confused because somehow we think judgment is about us. Remember John 14? He's not just coming back. He's coming back to get you. He's coming back to get me. 
Even if I somehow missed him, he's not going to miss me. That's why he's coming back. He's coming back to get me. I like being chosen. I don't know about you, but I really like being chosen. I didn't get to experience that a lot in school. When we had dodgeball or some other sport, because I had grown too tall too fast, I had this really cool combination of being clumsy and a show-off, which is a, boy, you talk about a double threat right there, let me tell you. Those two go together beautifully. So I got, to, I got to be chosen near the end or last several times during my middle school experience. I told the story of my best friend, I won't go into more detail to it, but my best friend, who was very athletic, being chosen to be the team captain one time, and he chose me first. He didn't choose me because he thought I could help him win. He knew better than anybody else that was not part of the plan. He chose me because he would rather lose with me than win without me. It feels good to be chosen. I like being chosen. I like how one of the great benefits of marriage is that we get to be chosen over and over and over again every day. That's a cool feeling. He's chosen us. And when he comes, this time we're not going to miss him. And he sure isn't going to miss us. And no one can keep us from him. Listen to how he's described. Revelation 19, 11 through 13. <clears throat> then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Here we have the complete expression of power. One apocryphal language, you remember that from uh, Daniel times, apocryphal, this language that's, that's meant to exemplify the truth in, in grandiose terms. All the expressions of power. He's not riding a donkey this time. It's a horse. He's coming in glory. He's called faithful and true in the Word of God, and he has another name that no one but him knows. In the Middle East at this time, knowing someone's true name was considered to have power over them. And, he's, and what, we're saying, what, what is being said in this passage is there is no one who has power over him. His eyes are flames and there are several crowns on his, not just one crown, several crowns stacked on his head. The only apocryphal language that could be added to power, some of you know what it is, would be horns. So why not horns? Well, probably because the power that horns represent in apocryphal language is horrifying power. It is, it is animalistic power, bestial power. And that's not the type of power we're looking in here. This isn't alien. This is a mighty warrior come to gather his people, his bride. He's going to rescue her and defeat with finality his enemies. There's a reason our souls connect to these moments. We are hardwired by our Creator to experience this. Listen, listen to this. Those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, okay? Um, Tolkien actually ends up giving a word for this. Um, it's, he calls it eucatastrophe. You meaning good, catastrophe, obviously bad. He means a sudden turn from, from tragic to all of a sudden good. Here's a great example of it, if, you, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Just as the, all of the heroes who are trapped in a fortress about to be annihilated, it's the end, there's no more hope for them. There suddenly upon a ridge appeared a rider clad in white, shining in the rising sun. Over the hills the horns were sounding. Behind them, hastening down the long slopes, were a thousand men on foot. Their swords were in their hands, and amid them strode a man tall and strong. His shield was red, and as he came with the valley's brink, he set to his lips a great black horn and blew a ringing blast. 
our souls connect to these moments when, when the enemy, when, when the, um, the hero of the stories, when the hero is beleaguered, defeated, the heroes face ultimate destruction, this moment of the you catastrophe, where all of a sudden things are reversed. The ultimate destruction is coming, and then at first light, on the fifth day, look to the east. Or maybe from a more modern perspective, on your left. Or my favorite, um, you're all clear, kid. Jesus said, behold, I'm coming quickly. That's what we're looking for. That's where our help comes from. We are wired by, the, by, the, by eternity in our souls to connect to that moment, to be rescued just when it seems like there's no more hope. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Stand, if you will. Today I'm going to look at, and we're going to wrap up our time actually with a, a bit of a psalm. This psalm, this psalm strongly connects with this idea of waiting, what it's like to wait on the Lord. So I want us to read it together as our, to close out our time with His Word. Um, when we, then we'll have a time of invitation. And listen, this time is it's not just a tradition. If you want to come up here and pray, we would love for you to do that. Um, probably many of you need to. As we talked about on Christmas Eve, sometimes the proper response to the story of Christmas is to fall on our knees. And if you've not got to experience that this season, maybe today is a good time for that, to come up and fall on your knees and pray. You can do that here or over in the corner if there's somebody there or, or up here with me or, or with somebody else in the room. Listen to what the Spirit has for you today. Be encouraged and enlightened by the fact that Jesus is coming back. And if you're one of His, He's coming back for you. And He's offering you freely to make you one of His. He's already done all the work. You just got to say yes. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog. And He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.